0: With that, we're going to get into this passage this morning. This is a fun one, Psalm 103. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, this is what we've been doing since we've been in this series. Um, First reading, if you just read Psalm 103 for the first time yourself, um, you may not know some of the background. What's interesting about this psalm is it it was written right around the same time as Psalm 51, which if you know anything about Psalm 51, it's a beautiful psalm of repentance, which David writes just, just after his sin has been exposed by the prophet Nathan. And so if you remember David's story of just massive sin, uh, there's a victimization of Bathsheba, murdering of Uriah. He's hidden it forever. His sin has been exposed. And as part of that, he's figured out also that his newborn son to Bathsheba, he's going to be losing him. You're going to read this story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so this psalm was written in the aftermath of King David losing his newborn son. And so that's going to take on a little bit of different, little different twist, twist there. And it says that, Um, Seven days after his son was born, he loses him, and then he washes up, he goes into the temple to worship, and this is what we think that he writes, and this is what we think that he worships to. Here's what he says, notice this, he says, praise the Lord, O my soul, let all my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins and he heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit and he crowns you with steadfast love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and he's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always chide or accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And I just felt like this is a thing I want to, someone may need to just repeat that in your mind a little bit more. He will not always chide or accuse, and he will not harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower in the child. In the field, the wind blows over it and is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. You his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Heavenly Father, would you, God, give us a great, accurate picture of you, Lord, this morning, that our souls will be able to praise you and lift you up in the middle of transition and tragedy and sadness and despair. Father, I pray that you would meet people this morning and do a work where we'd be able to sit here and say it as well with my soul. I bless you, O oh God. Father, we remember that you 're good, and for the person who's having a hard time remembering today, I pray that you would remind them God that you would scream it, make it loud and clear, that they wouldn 't be able to avoid it any longer, and I pray that we would leave feeling the sense that you are with us, that you are good. We love you, God, we give you this morning and pray this in Jesus, mighty and holy name. Amen, and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat and it 's good to be back. I missed you guys last week. Uh, I had a chance to go out with my family and uh, my my brothers and my sister and my dad and go go to a Florida Gator football game. It was a ton of fun. It was kind of like dad was like a kid in a candy store at the, in Gainesville there. So that was a good time. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, having Sherry out here last week. You to check him out. Like that was fantastic. I wasn't lying about that guy, right? Um, just an incredible story. I didn't know if you know that, that God is working all around the world. It's not just here in Dallas. He's working in dark places, heavily persecuted places, places that you thought that things were dead and done with. He is working in Iran and doing incredible things. What a testimony to hear the story of being in prison and, and still having your faith intact. I've always been fascinated by stories like that, different people all around the world living in tragic circumstances that are still able to praise the Lord. Um, I was thinking about that and remembering uh, my first experience with that a little while ago. I found this picture just a little bit ago. I'll share it with you on Facebook. This is from 2007, and uh, this is my first trip to Rwanda. I've shared with you guys a little bit about that trip. Um, This is a ministry for widows of the genocide in 1994, and so this is a group of women. They were living there by themselves with some orphans there. They've all been widowed and lost their loved ones in the genocide and uh, this is the first place that we went to go minister in, in Rwanda. Beautiful place. They're lining the streets. They're singing praise to the Lord all day long. Unbelievable joy. And I remember what I remember about this thing is we showed up there and we were supposed to be coming and doing bringing some computers with us. We were going to establish this learning uh, laboratory for them and build some stuff and, and really did spend a lot of time there. But our plans got messed up. The computers didn't make it in transit. Some of the team got left behind. They weren't able to make it either. And I remember showing up and talking with one of the pastors there. His name was Pastor Benjamin. And I remember coming and saying, okay, I was like, Benjamin, I'm you know, this is, I'm sorry, I know this is not what you guys wanted. We were supposed to be this lab, and we're not even going to be around here to, to do anything about it. I mean, they're not going to be coming till much later, and this is, this is just so disappointing. And I remember him kind of laughing at me and just being like, Brother Aaron, Brother Aaron, it is all going to be okay. We know who is in charge. And I was like, Benjamin, did you hear what I just said? The computers that we came to bring, like, they're not coming They're not going to be coming for a long time. We're not going to be here to train you on this. And and like, aren't you upset about this and stuff? And he just kind of chuckled. And he goes, Pastor Aaron, he goes, let me tell you, let me tell you. And he sits me down, and he just tells me a story of a time when when he was probably about 11, 12 years old. Uh, He was just a boy. He needed to take a trip all around the country. If you don't know Rwanda at that time, uh, roads weren't, they didn't have highway systems like this. So you get on a bus and you're going up and down potholes all day long. And so travel, this is a thing that was going to be taking him all day long. So he's like, I'm a boy. I'm traveling by myself. And he goes, I got there early that day. And I got the best seat on the bus. It was right behind the driver, tons of leg room, had all the best leg room on the bus. I was able to spread out, and it was awesome seating, and I was excited. So he gets in there, and they start doing this traveling for about five hours. Finally, they take a break, and then they, they all stop. And he says, like, I get off the bus, and, and I go to the restroom, and I come back. And when I come back, like, there's a man sitting in my seat. And he's like, what's up with this guy sitting here? And so he says, excuse me, sir, this is my seat. I was sitting here. And he goes, not anymore, you're not. And Benjamin's like, who does that? Like, wh- who does that to a kid? Like, I hear, like, stealing candy from a kid, that's wrong. Like, stealing a seat from a kid, that's just, that's terribly wrong and stuff. So he's like, no, sir, uh, this is my seat. I've been sitting here the whole time. And he goes, your seat's now back there. And so he goes, I was angry. I was angry. I took my stuff, and I didn't know what to do. I took my stuff. I went to the back of the bus, and I sat in all this congested area and stuff. And he goes, I was angry. About 15 minutes later, they keep driving down the road, and they come to this barricade there, and their forces stop. And there's these men out there that are, that are kind of stopping traffic. And a man walks onto the bus with a machete. And he takes care of the driver. And he takes care of the man that was sitting in his seat. And then he grabs the money box and he takes off and he runs. And he goes, Aaron, you know, I've never tried to fully understand the sovereignty of God. And here's what he says. He says, I've never understood fully how this whole thing works out and stuff. All I know is that I was really, really angry about a seat change. And God was busy saving my life. And he goes on to tell me story after story after story of the genocide and how God used flat tires and flooded rivers and one seat change after the next to not only save his own life, to be able to save the lives of all these women that we were visiting that day. And so he goes there and he goes, I, I'm not concerned about computers. Like, I'm just not concerned about computers. I'm not concerned about whether or not your team's able to come and control, train us and stuff like that because... I know that no matter the fact that our seat may be changing today, I know the one who is in control. And I love that idea of a seat change because I think it's an idea, I think it's an image that we can all hold on to. We know how frustrating it is when our seats changed. We know how frustrating it is. Maybe it's something that we did to deserve it. Maybe we brought it upon ourselves. Maybe it's just something that's passively been taking place and it happens to us. We know how frustrating it is when we have to change change our seats. Maybe it's a job change or something like that and, and all of a sudden um, you've got to pick up your family and you've got to move. Or maybe your ministry or your job is taking a brand new direction and it's not what you envisioned. It's not what you'd hoped for in this season and all of a sudden you're dealing with all this turmoil at work. Maybe it's a family change. Maybe it's an actual divorce or a Maybe it's a separation. Maybe you're dealing with a tragic loss in your family. Maybe it's empty nest. Maybe you're widowed now for the first time. Maybe it's, maybe it's something going on at home. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's an unwelcome diagnosis that you just had. Maybe it's something like David and you brought upon this seat change yourself. Maybe you're grieving a number of different losses all at one time. Church, like how in the world uh, do you, what do you do when your seat's changing? How do you hold on to faith? Um, in the middle of a seat change, when everything in your life is being disrupted, when things are moving and changing all around, like how do you hold on to faith in the middle of this thing? It's exactly what David's dealing with here in this text. Again, like this is written around the same time as Psalm 51. This is massive turmoil. This is just after he's experienced loss. This is just before um, he's experienced a ton of tragedy in his own family. I mean, everything is shifting all around. This This is what's going on here in this Psalm. And I want you to notice how he begins the whole thing. He simply begins it and he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my own inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. In the ESV, King James Version and a number of different versions, they're going to use a different word. They're going to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let not, let all that is within me bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of his benefits. So the word that he uses there is barachi Okay, so this is for the word, for instead of praise, it's blessed, baraki. So this is different than halal, which is the Hebrew word for praise. We talked about that about six weeks ago. You remember this? Halal is this exuberant praise where you come together, things are good, things are joyous, you're celebrating a victory, you're enthusiastic about what's going on, you're assigning value to the one that you praise. That's what an appraisal is. They come back and they say, your home is worth this amount of money. When we praise God, we are assigning a value to who he is. We are gladly boasting in those different things. That's halal. Barahi simply means to bless or to kneel. And so it's a different type of praise. It's It's a much more sober kind of a praise. It's the kind of praise that comes from a humbled position that is kneeling before the Lord. In other words, it's much more Bible church than it is Pentecostal, right? Like, it's just, like, that's the kind of praise that the Bible Church we enter into. It's much more sober-minded and stuff like that. It is the only kind of praise that is appropriate when you're experiencing an unwelcome seat change in your life. So he's very humble. He's very sober in this moment. And he's blessing the Lord. And so I want you to notice what he's blessing him for. Here's what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. In other words, no matter what's going on around me today, no matter my circumstances, the change of pace, the loss that I'm experiencing, the pain in my family, whatever's going on here, like I'm always going to be able to bless the Lord for who you are. You are holy, God. You are holy. There is no sin within you. There is no error. There is no weakness in you. You do not tire. You are... You are you are transcendent. You are above all, in all, through you, all things hold together, right? That's who you are. I can always, always, always praise you for your character. If you're familiar with the Acts model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, adoration is what, is what this is. This is adoring God, praising him simply because of who he is, his qualities and things like that. And so he says, I will bless your name, O Lord, and all that is within me, bless your holy name. And then he continues and he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And he says, forget not all of his benefits. Forget not all of his benefits. In other words, what what, what is doing here is that he is choosing to bless God. He is choosing to bless him, not only because God's worthy, but also because he's good. Like, that's what he's doing. He is choosing to bless God in the middle of this time right here, not only because he's worthy of blessing and praise, but simply because of the fact that he is good. It is good for him to be in relationship with this God. God brings blessing into his life. There are benefits to being in this kind of relationship with God. And so that's what he's fighting to remember in this thing. And so I, I use the word choose because he's choosing to praise him in this moment. He's choosing to bless him. Like choosing uh, praise is not what you naturally want to do in the middle of loss and pain and tragedy and the things that David's dealing with in this, in this moment. He's choosing to bless him. He is fighting to remember. He's preaching to his soul saying, hey, soul, don't forget the blessings of God. Don't forget the benefits of God right now. Like, don't forget the things that are true in this moment. He's preaching to his soul, and he's choosing to bless him in the middle of this time, right? Like, that's not what you typically do uh, in times of sadness and tragedy. Like, what's natural in the middle of that time is to dwell upon the pain and to dwell upon the bad things that are taking place right here and to blame him for those things. Meanwhile, you forget about the blessings. You forget about the fact that he is good in the middle of these things, and, and we remember the things that I'm experiencing right now in this moment. What's natural is to feel so entitled to good things that we forget about all the other different things that he's done. What's natural is to feel so self-sufficient in any given moment that we forget about the fact that I'm completely dependent upon him for absolutely everything in my life. It's why all throughout the Old Testament, the second most repeated command that you're going to hear is, hey, don't forget. Church, don't forget the things of God. Don't forget the commands of God. Don't forget the character of God. Don't forget the blessings of God. Remember these things. Remember that he's the one that delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. He's the one that part of the Red Sea. He's the one that provided manna and water and provision while you were wandering in the wilderness. He's the one who provided the law. He's the one true God who spoke the world into existence. Don't forget who he actually is like, because forgetfulness just seems to be our default. And so David's sitting here and he's, ble- he's preaching to his soul and he's saying, hey soul, don't forget the blessings of God. I don't forget that there's benefit to being in relationship with him, that he's not just far away and distant, and he didn't just leave me here to myself, and he's just preaching to his own soul, hey, don't forget these different things. I love the way Tony Evans talks about this. Um, he says, since our feelings don't have brains, sometimes we've got to tell our feelings how to feel. He says, we can't sit around hoping to feel our way into truth. We've gotta, sometimes we've got to cling to the truth and then tell our feelings how to fall in line. Anyone ever needed to do that before? And we were just saying about it, even though I can't see it, I know that you're working. Even though I can't feel it, I know that you're working. Even though I'm not, like my, my, I, my, my heart's disrupted within me. Like if you've ever needed to clean the truth, that's exactly what he's talking about here. And so David's doing that. He, he, there's disruption, there's change. And he's sitting here going, Father, he's saying, God, like, don't let me forget, like soul, don't forget that he's good and that there's blessing in relationship with him. And so the rest of the psalm is just a massive list of the blessings and the benefits of being in relationship with this kind of God. And so listen to what he says. He says, he's the one who forgives all your sin. So don't forget this. He's the one who's forgiven all my sin. He's the one who heals all my disease. He's the one who redeemed my life from the pit and crowns me with love and compassion. He's the one who satisfies my desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, which evidently has a lot of vigor, I guess. But... That's what he said. These are just the first few verses of the psalm. It's just going on and on and on. Like, he's forgiven my sin. He heals my disease, redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies me with good things. He renews my youth like the eagles. Verse 6, he works righteousness and justice for all those who are oppressed. We'll talk about that more next week. He made known his way to Moses. In other words, heck, he's not a distant, unknowable God. He makes himself known. He's given the Ten Commandments. He's given the entirety of the law. He's given us an entire book that has been breathed into by the Holy Spirit, fully inspired, without error, which we can know him by. He's made himself known. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And church, like, the psalm just keeps going on and on and on. Because here it is, church, like, when the seat is changing, when your seat is disruptive and everything's changing in your life, like, you have to know that he is good. You have to know that the one who is above all, in all, through all, the one who is transcendent, the one who is sovereign and totally in charge, you have to know that he is good. And so he says, he says, He says, hey, don't forget that he's the one who's forgiven all your sin. Church, don't forget that. I know that it's elementary now, because you graduated past that truth. I know that you've been in church forever, and that's, like, that's what we're teaching our kindergartners right now. Don't forget that he's forgiven all of your sin. Don't forget that he's the one that does like even if even if the seat changes your fault even if the things the disruption going on in your life are things that you brought into this thing like don't forget that there is forgiveness and don't forget that there is grace on the other side of this thing don't forget he is slow to anger he's abounding in love like don't forget that that he won't always chide or accuse and that his anger won't last for a lifetime Don't forget that that he has removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. In other words, that is an infinite amount of distance in which he has thrown your sin away. Otherwise, church, here it is. You will live the rest of your days crushed under the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation instead of experiencing the freedom which he has provided through his grace. Church, it is costly to forget the benefits of God. It is costly to forget the benefits of God, even the elementary things that we see here. Like John Wesley forgot that he came to forgive his own sin, not just the sins of the world, but his own sin. John Wesley, the hero of the faith, the the founder of the Methodist church, the, the great revivalist and evangelist and great missionary and hymn writer and all these different kinds of things. He writes about his own story and he talks about how for years he and his brother Charles, they labored in the church. They served. They preached the gospel. Jesus died for the sins of the world. They went there and they served. They did incredible missions work. They did all these different things. Here it is, though, not because they had been saved, but in order to be saved and to still continue to be forgiven and saved today. He writes about it all the time, how how the early years of his adult ministry were spent in so much shame, so much heaviness, and so much labor working and working and working in order to be approved before God. He talked about he, he would come back from different revivals and he would just labor before God saying, Lord, was it good enough? Was it good enough? Was it good enough, God? I, 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 did anything good happen? And he would just labor and labor. I love the way that he talks about his, his uh, uh, the, the night that it all changed. But he says in the evening, he says, he went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Church, okay, like no one has that testimony in this room where you got saved, someone reading Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans, right? This is how it works out for John Wesley. So he goes there, a dude's up there reading like the intro to this commentary. It says about a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, he says that I felt my heart strangely warmed. It was then that I finally trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins Not just the world's sins, but my sin too. Notice the distinction there. Not just that he died for everybody else, but he actually died for my sins too. And that he saved me from the law of sin and death too. All these years, he says, I've been preaching about the forgiveness of sin and the saving power of Jesus Christ. And it was not until that night that I understood that he suffered and he died for me that I could be totally and completely set free. Church, for a lot of us, it's exactly where we are. Tired and exhausted and confused anxious, insecure all the time. God, is my church attendance enough? Is my Bible discipline enough? Are the things that I'm doing enough for you? Tired and exhausted, and we have forgotten that he has died for the forgiveness of all of our sins, the entirety of them. He's died for my sins, not just everybody else's, but the things that I brought into this table. And and what that means is that he's died for the forgiveness of all your sins, even the ones from last night, even the ones from the early years in your young adult life, even the times in college that you're thankful YouTube wasn't around for it, right? Like even those things, the things that hound your mind, that continue to play over and over again in your thoughts as you try to go to sleep at night, that he's died for the forgiveness and he's forgiven all of your sins from as far as the east is to the west. Like, can you imagine being David and sitting here going, okay, how do you deal with the fact that, you know what, I've ruined Bathsheba, I've killed her husband, And now there's all this fallout in my family. Like, how in the world do you deal with that unless you know, because you know, because you know, that God is a God full of grace and mercy, and his grace and mercy is able to forgive even those sins. Like, he's dealing with the worst of the worst. And he's sitting here clinging to the fact that that he is a God who forgives. Church, I'm telling you, like, it all hangs on your ability to remember what's true in that moment. Like, it's the difference between Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, and the woman who is weeping at Jesus' feet, washing his feet with her tears. I mean, you remember that story, right? Like Simon's the religious guy who does all these religious things. He's got Jesus in his home having dinner and Jesus is just another guest at the table. This woman's described as a sinner. However, the difference is that she sees Jesus as her savior. And so she comes in and she sees Jesus reclining at this table. She falls at his feet, starts weeping at his feet, washing his feet with her tears because she understands how much she's been forgiven in him. Simon leaves that meeting and that dinner time rebuked and this woman leaves being admonished and lifted up. He stays religious and numb, and she's been set free. Church, the point of the matter is, like, it is costly to forget the benefits of God. It's costly to forget the fullness of what he's done for you. Like, church, it's costly to forget that he still heals your disease today. Like, James is going to say, is anyone among you suffering? He's going to say, let him pray. Let him pray about it. Don't just hope good things. He's going to say, "Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Anyone sick, call the elders of the church in order to pray for them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered up in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up." Church, in other words, like He's still healing people today. He's inviting us into to, to ask for His healing power today. He is still moving in power today. Inasmuch as there is healing, it is coming from the mighty hand of God. And granted, church, like I want want you to hear me, it does not mean that everyone will always be healed in the way that we're asking them to be healed. It does not mean that everyone will always be healed in the timeline we want them to be healed in. Like, don't miss this. David had been fasting and praying for uh, his child who had just been born, and he loses his son. Like, it does not mean that that will always take place, yet he's the one sitting there saying, you're the God who heals I know that's who you are. You're the God who can bring your power in. I've seen you do it before. It doesn't mean it's always going to be there, yet I know that's who you are. And we are invited to ask him to continue to, 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 continue to bring his power into these circumstances and to bring healing into things that are broken. I mean, I'll never forget sitting here a couple years back and, and sitting in the, the living room of the valleys. We've told this story a hundred times here before, but uh, uh, Monica was about four or five months pregnant at that time. Baby Sydney had holes in her heart and she just got this diagnosis back that baby Sydney was not gonna make it. There's about 30 of us from the church over at their living room, praying and praying and praying, God, bring healing to this family. Meet them in the middle of their sadness. God, bring healing into this situation taking place over here. Like, how do you deal with this thing? About a a week later, um, Monica goes in for a hospital visit and and the doctor comes in and says, hey, uh, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm not seeing the same things that we saw a few weeks back. Don't get your hopes up right now because there's a lot more that needs to be taking place, but, but, but just hang in there. I've not seen the same thing. Six weeks later, I get an email from Daniel and he tells me, hey, there is normal function. There's no holes to be found in Sydney's heart. He says, long story short, everything that had been part of the former diagnosis, this is his email he sends me, was no longer there. The doctors said they had checked the previous sonograms, which they still had, and had seen the findings as they were described, but they could not explain what they were seeing right now. Church, he is still moving and he is still healing today. Like it's not just out there and it does not mean every, he's, every situation is always going to be taking place. But David has just experienced loss and he's still saying, hey, I praise you and I remember you're the God who heals. Church, I had 30 years with my cousin when I shouldn't have had a couple days. Like She continued to just overcome and overcome and overcome. God brought miraculous healing. She wasn't supposed to have any kind of control over her limbs. She had control over her limbs. She wasn't supposed to be able to speak. She was speaking all the time. She wasn't supposed to have a life. She was supposed to be a vegetable. And she had a personality God used to bring salvation to so many people around her life. God, he is bringing healing over and over and over again. On Wednesday, I'm sitting there and I'm talking with Evelyn Babcock. And she comes in and says, hey, I've got a praise report. I just got the PET scan back, and there are no more tumors in my head. There are no more tumors to be found. Church, there are so many of you who have been praying for that over and over and over again. But here's what she had to say about this, and I love what she had to say. She goes, as you tell this to the church, let them know I have been praising God when I had the tumors, and, I will continue, and, I will, and I'm praising him now that I don't have the tumors. Whether I have tumors, I will praise him. Or if I don't have tumors, I will continue to praise him. It does not matter which way, I will continue to give him the praise. Church, I'm telling you, it is costly to forget the benefits of God. It is costly to forget that he's a God who's, who's not distant and unknowable and his power has no play today, that he is a God who continues to come in and do the miraculous and bring healing still today, sometimes physically, most of the time emotionally, always spiritually for those who come to him in faith, and one day perfectly still future when he promises to return again and to make all things brand new. Church, he is a healing, healing, healing God, and it is costly to forget the benefits of God. It is costly to forget that he redeems that which is broken. That's what he's singing about right here. It is costly to forget that God is a God who comes in and enters into our mess, and he's able to redeem the things that have been broken in my life. And then here it is. Because he has redeemed my life from the pit, as the psalmist talks about here in the psalm, because he has done all that, he can still redeem my brokenness today. That's what he says, verse 4. He crowns you with love and compassion. Like, that's what he does. It's not, just, it's not just, hey, words or anything like that. He crowns you with love and compassion. In other words, he has purchased us by his blood, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, brought us up out of that pit, and he has crowned us with royalty, brought us into this brand new family. And as much as you have, given, you have confessed faith in Jesus Christ, he's given you the right to be called a child of God. Like, that's what he's done. He's he brought you into this family, crowned you with love and compassion, redeemed you out of the pit. Verse five, he satisfies your desires with good things. In other words, our desires change over time. Instead of the old destructive things of the past, like he gives brand new desires because he brings about brand new life. Church, like what else do you need to hold on to in the middle of a seat change except for the fact that my God redeems like, what else do you need to hold on to in the middle of all this, this, this change, in the middle of all this disruption, except for the fact that, hey, he's not a distant, unknowable, faraway God. He's a God who enters into this mess, and he circles things around, and somehow in the middle of his majesty, he is able to take my mess and bring about redemption and healing and wholeness once again. One day in the future, your your tears will dry up. He will bring about a brand new joy which you were not able to see today. What else do you hold on to in times when your seats are changing except that that's who my God is? He is a God who redeems, and I know that because he's already redeemed me out of the pit. Church, David needs to know that that's who he is. David is experiencing the biggest mess any of us could possibly imagine. He's experiencing pain, loss, the sickness of his own sin, He's experiencing tragedy and tragedy and tragedy. And he's sitting there holding on to saying, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, my God redeems. And so, yeah, he is preaching to his soul saying, hey, soul, I don't forget that. Don't forget that. In the middle of my sadness, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of this tragedy that I'm dealing with right now, like I'm not always going to be here. God comes in and he meets you in the middle of that thing. And as you walk with him over time, he's able to redeem the mess that you're in. And the beauty of David's story, church, is that like, like it is testimony after testimony of the fact that his disposition is that he wants to redeem. That's who God is. He's a redeeming God. I mean, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God knows everything that's about to happen with David. Like, these are the good days of David. He's faithful, he's honoring God. 2 Samuel 7 comes in, but God in his omniscience, he understands how bad David's gonna blow it. And still, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he comes to David and he makes him a covenant. And he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever and ever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He makes a covenant with this king who's doing well now, but he knows he's gonna blow it. He knows he's gonna mess things up, and he knows how bad it's gonna get with him. Acts 13, long after David's passed away, long after the story's played out, like David still could be described as a man after God's own heart. How in the world does that happen, given his track record of horror? How in the world do you get the label of, hey, you're still a man after God's own heart, except for the fact that He's a God who comes in and He redeems? He comes in and He meets you in the middle of your personal sin, your personal tragedy, the things that you've brought into, the t- into this situation and you've brought this mess into the thing. And He comes in, and through repentance, He does come and He redeems. And, church, that is the kicker of this whole thing. That is the kicker. Like, re- redemption always begins with repentance, it always begins with repentance. That's why Psalm 51 and Psalm 103, they go together. They're written right around the same time. Sin has been exposed, and immediately David goes, and he just starts repenting. Psalm 51, he writes this beautiful psalm of repentance. God, have mercy on me. Oh God, I'm a sinner. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, he says. I know my transgressions, he says. Cleanse me with hyssop. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice again. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I mean, it's just an entire psalm of repentance, not just, not empty words. Don't hear me like that. We're not talking about the words that you can say to pacify someone that you've hurt so that you can continue to get away with the things that you do. We're not talking about empty apologies. We're talking about genuine remorse. There's a brokenness over your sin. There's a brokenness against the offense against a holy God. And there's an honest coming before his throne saying, Lord, I'm laying them down. God, would you create in me a brand new heart so that I don't continue to perpetuate these exact same things, continue to offend the holiness of God. I'm laying them down and I'm coming to you. God, give me the ability to repent and to turn from this thing. And so David comes and he repents. And God comes and he does what he does. He redeems. He restores the joy of David's salvation and he he washes them completely clean like all of his sins are completely forgiven. He restores his marriage somehow. He lets him hear joy and gladness again. In time, he gives him another son named Solomon who would go on to write Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And He would sit on David's throne and he would eventually take over. And then God has continued to be faithful. He's faithful to his promises to David. God, in his infinite love for humanity, sends his one and only son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin Mary who also happens to be in the line of King David so that his throne will be established forever and ever and ever, that all who are lost and dead in their sins may come to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine faith, repenting of the past, coming to him in genuine faith, to be forgiven of their sin, healed of their eternal disease, crowned with love and righteousness, and then completely redeemed from the pit. Church, I'm telling you, like it is costly to forget about that, the fact that his disposition is to redeem everything that's been broken. Like, what, what would we be reading about in Scripture if we did not have all the redemption stories there? Who would be left to right? That's every, that's every single story. It's every author in Scripture, right? Adam and Eve, as soon as sin breaks into the picture, immediately God provides for them a covering. Like, Moses was a murderer. God turns him into one of the most humble and beautiful leaders that God's going to use to bring the nation of Israel out of the bondage of slavery uh, from the hand of the Egyptians. Right? Like, like, Aaron is an idolater. God uses him to be a priest. Like Solomon is a sex addict, and he goes on to become a king, which I guess isn't that unusual. Um, Matthew is a deceptive tax collector. Jesus chooses him to be a disciple. Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven different demons, right? And she goes on to go. She's the first witness of the resurrected Christ. She's the apostle to the apostle. Peter had a temper. Paul was the leading persecutor of the church. God redeems them. He, He restores them. They go on to become some of the most fruitful missionaries the world has ever seen. And church, some of us need to hear this. Because the seat change that you are experiencing today is largely because of something that you brought to the table. And what you need to hear is the fact that God is a redeemer. The fact that he is a redeemer means that you do not have to be finished. Your story does not have to be done. There is redemption on the other side of repentance always. There is redemption on the other side of repentance always. And it does not mean that the consequences may always be taken away. It does not mean that there will not necessarily be fallout from there. However, I want you to pay attention to the fact that David's life is not finished right here. David's life is not finished right here. It continues to move forward. Moses was not finished. Church Peter and Paul, like they weren't finished. Mary Magdalene wasn't finished. All the different things, like they weren't finished in in the middle of their dysfunction, church. What this means is that your marriage may not have to be finished. There is redemption on the other side of honest, genuine repentance. Not lip service not pacifying things. There is redemption on the other side of honest, genuine repentance. Your broken relationships may not have to be finished here. There is redemption on the other side of repentance. I'm telling you, church, it is costly to forget about the benefits of being in relationship with God. Even the things that Even the things that are broken in your life that that may not necessarily be a matter of repenting. It may not be a matter of, hey, this is something I brought to the table and this disruption is my fault or or that kind of a thing. Like like Joseph is sold into slavery and and God somehow elevates him into a position of power in Egypt and God uses him to be a savior for the nation of Israel in a time of famine. (laughs) That's just what he does. He takes being sold into slavery and God elevates him and redeems this whole entire situation. Esther. Esther is taken as a concubine of an evil king and and she goes on to become a savior of Israel. Church, what I'm trying to say is just because your seed is changing today does not mean that you're finished because he is a God who redeems. He is a God who is not content to stay far away and distant and void. He comes and he enters into this mess and through repentance sometimes he comes he works his, his power and he redeems a broken situation to bring about something beautiful. David continues by reminding us one more time again, and he just simply wraps this whole thing up. And he says, hey, soul, don't forget that the Lord is in control. He's the one, verse 19, who establishes his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And then he wraps it all up the same way that he began. He says in verse 20, bless the Lord, all you his angels, you his mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Bless the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. In other words, no matter what's going on, soul, would you just praise him? Would you just bless him and rest in him? Horatio Spafford was a believer living in the late 19th century who was well acquainted with changing seats. He's a man who knew a lot of pain. Also knew a lot of victory. He was a very successful businessman in the 1870s, owned a lot of land in Chicago. He was a very fruitful, very prosperous, well-known believer. Um, in 1871, he would lose his son to scarlet fever. At the same time, the, the great fire of Chicago would wipe out pretty much all of his real estate, all of his investments, all of his retirement, and the majority of all the wealth that he had. So he went from being very powerful, very wealthy, well-known, to pretty much having very, very little left over uh, after that. Um, those two things probably in and of themselves would be enough to crush, crush most of us, but a couple of years later, he and his wife decide that they're going to take a vacation, and they're going to bring their four little girls with them over to England. They're going to go team up with Dwight Moody, who is traveling the, the coast, and he is doing his tent revivals, and God's anointing is on Dwight Moody, and, and just uh, unbelievable things taking place. So he and his family are going to go join him on the circuit, and they're going to go preach the gospel, and do a lot of mission work and stuff like that. And so the day comes where they're about to set sail. Business keeps Horatio back. He's not able to get on the boat. And so his wife and his daughters decide, you know what, we're going to move forward without you. Uh, meet us over there. We'll, we'll see you on the other side. And so they go on the, on the ship, and they travel over. And somewhere in the middle of the ocean, um, is I think historians are going to say, the second most catastrophic shipwreck, shipwreck the world's ever seen before the, uh, before the Titanic. The ship wrecks 226 people on the board of the ship. They pass away, including all four of his daughters. His wife miraculously survives the thing. She's knocked unconscious. She's found floating on a, uh, on a, on a piece of wood in the middle of the ocean. And so she makes it to the, to the bank of Wales and and she sends a little telegram back to her husband, which simply says, Saved and alone, uh, what should I do? Can you imagine that? Saved and alone, what should I do? So immediately, Horatio gets the news, and he gets uh, enough money together. He jumps on the next ship that he, that he can so that he can go meet up with his wounded wife. They're taking him across the ocean, where they get to the place where the ship, passed, where the ship sank. The captain calls him into his quarters and says, I thought you'd want to see this. This is the place where the ship went down. And there, as he was looking over the seas where his four daughters were, he was reminded of Psalm 103. He picks it up and he starts reading. And as he's weeping over the loss of his little girls, he's inspired to write the words of this song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Does sound, song sound familiar to anybody? Been singing this the entirety of our life, right? This has gone on to become one of the most well-known hymns in the church. We've been singing it for well over a hundred years. Church, you want to know how to hold on when the seat's changing in your life? Like you don't forget that the Lord is good. You don't forget his benefits. You bless him because not only is he worthy, but you bless him because of his benefits. It's good to be in relationship with him. You don't forget that he has forgiven all of your sin. He's taken away the biggest thing in your life. He still heals all your disease. You don't forget that he redeems the broken. You don't forget that he crowns you with love and compassion. And here it is, church. You don't forget that he's the one who's still in control today, that he's established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all still today. Church, my hope and my prayer for us is that we would not forget the benefits of God today. And that we may honestly be able to say, no matter what come my way, whether I see tumors or no tumors, whether it's times of grief or times of praise, we can honestly say before the Lord, it is well, it is well with my soul.